Please, people of God, turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, page 1253. If you're using the Adoration Bibles, 1253. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've come to the third chapter where, where Paul has been setting before his readers the most blessed reality that the life of the believer is hidden with Christ and God. Paul has set before his readers their new identity and their new destiny. But as we heard last time, this new identity and this new destiny brings with it a new mentality and a new duty. And this is the thread the Apostle Paul picks up on again this morning. We considered the negative aspect of this new duty last time and the call to put to death and to put away And now as we come to verses 12 to 17, we come to the positive aspect of this duty, the duty to put on. For the sake of context, we begin our reading again at verse 1 of chapter 3, but our focus will be on verses 12 to 17. This is God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, the sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many occasions on which what you wear gives expression to who you are. When you go to a wedding, for example, it's never hard to figure out who the bride is because the bride is the one who's wearing the beautiful white dress. When you go to a graduation ceremony, it's not hard to figure out who the graduates are because they're the ones who are wearing the the funny caps and the graduation gowns. The same is true if you were to join a sports team or if you were to join the the military, you'd be given a uniform. And and when appropriate, you'd you'd don that uniform so that everyone would, would know whose team you're on. And this, of course, is the imagery that the Apostle Paul is is employing here in Colossians chapter 3. In virtue of of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have have put off the old man with all its practices, and and we have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As you heard last time, believers have been incorporated into a new humanity. They've They've been brought into a new community. Believers, one and all, have a new identity. They have a new destiny. And so the point that Paul has been making for us since verse 5 is that these things ought to be evident in our lives. To be sure, as we heard a few weeks ago, who we are in Christ Jesus, by and large, is, is hidden from the world. The world does not see us for who we really are or for, for who we one day will be as As John says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be just like him because we shall see him as he is. But there is a sense in these verses in which that which is hidden begins to be made manifest already here and now, namely through our putting to death the old and through our putting on the new as we seek to to put to death that earthly dimension of ourselves, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and so on, as we seek to to put away all anger, wrath, and malice, and as we seek to, to put on the new, that which is otherwise hidden begins to be made manifest. For every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus said Jesus in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. For as Jesus said in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It will be evident that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is essentially what the apostle is getting at here. As I've said many times before, Paul is pressing this point home, that that knowing whose you are is what now defines who you are. But who you are ought to have a profound impact on on the way you are. Who you are on the inside, a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus, ought to be made evident on the outside. Not only by mortifying your sin, but also by mirroring your Savior. Those who belong to Him, you see, will more and more begin to look like Him. Those who who belong to Christ, will begin more and more to act like Christ, and and they'll begin to reflect Christ to those around them. And so it's rather fitting that we should consider these words this morning, because this is the very thing that 
that Anamik and Elizabeth have promised to do in their profession of faith. Like many of us, they've, they've made a promise to humble themselves before God, to seek their lives, not in themselves, but in Christ. They've declared they love God, and that is their desire to serve God by doing what? By, by putting to death their old nature and by seeking to lead a godly life. And this is what the apostle is pressing upon us here. Paul is showing us what leading a godly life looks like. Who you are on the inside ought to be reflected on the outside, not only by mortifying your sin, but also by mirroring your Savior. And so in the first place, we see that the believer is to put on a new attire. The believer is to put on a compassionate heart, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience. Believers are, are to bear with one another, and they are to forgive one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven them. And they are to, to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In the second place, the believer is to recognize that he has a new arbitrator. That's the sense of verses 15 and 16. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts, he's saying that whenever a conflict arises, whenever a conflict arises, you need to ask yourselves the question, how, how would Jesus deal with this conflict? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus act? And then you need to act accordingly. And then the third place, Paul sets before us a new ambition. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, you are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But Paul begins with our attire. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice once again, congregation, the gospel grammar in Paul's words. I'm going to keep pressing this home again and again because the gospel grammar is so important for us to see if we are to have any success in the Christian life. Once again, Paul is, is calling us to do something that we cannot do on our, on, our, on our own. We can no more put on these virtues of the new man than we can put off those vices of the old man if left to ourselves. What Paul says to us here in verses 12 and following is still governed by what he said in verses 1 through 4, that, that we've been raised with Christ, that our lives are, are hidden with Christ in God. What Paul says here comes to us in light of what he's just said in verses 9 and 10. We have put off the old and we have put on the new. And now notice the gospel grammar in, verses, in verse 12 itself, because once again, what does Paul do? Once again, Paul grounds his command in something great. He reminds his readers of who they are. In the Lord Jesus Christ, they are God's chosen ones. In the Lord Jesus Christ, they are holy and beloved. You see, boys and girls, when I like Paul address the congregation in the sermon as beloved, when I address the congregation as the dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not just preacher talk. 
That's not just flowery Sunday preacher talk, preacher talk for saying, hey, everybody, or, or hey, friends. But I address you as the dear congregation, as beloved, because that's who you are. That's who you are. And that's what Paul is, is doing here. Do you, do you realize that you were chosen? And do you realize what that means? When God calls you his, his chosen ones, he's saying you're wanted. You're loved. You're in. You're included. I've chosen you. You're, you're part of my family. But if you're part of his family, and you are, if you're in Christ, if you're part of his family, then you ought to act like it. That's, that's the logic of verses 12 to 17. If you're part of God's family, then you ought to act like it. And so, Paul spells out what are some of these family traits. As I look out at you this morning, it's not hard to see family resemblances. The Wickerings have a Wickerink look about them. The Kickers have a Kickert look about them. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Those who are part of God's family, they look like one another. They have common family traits that, that make it evident that they're part of the family of God. And, and what all these traits have in common, these virtues that we are to put on and thereby show to those around us, is that they are all first put on and shown to us in the person of the Lord Jesus. Yes, Paul is calling these Colossian believers, he's calling you and me to live in a whole new way. He is summoning us to live in a, in a way that stands in stark contrast to the ways of the world. But he's calling us to do so in light of who we are in the Lord Jesus. And so with these words, Christ is essentially calling us to a life of consistency. Christ is calling us to be consistent. He's calling us to have integrity, to, to integrate who we now are with what we are like. He's calling us to integrate who we are with, with what we wear. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, Paul is saying, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that when others see you, they see something of him. All these virtues were first put on, they were first shown to us in the person of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 9 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like Sheep without a shepherd. Their helplessness did not cause them to despise them, but their helplessness is what drew him towards them. Luke 7 tells us that when, when the Lord saw that grieving widow as her, as her dead son was being carried out of the city, her only son, Luke says when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he raised her son back to life. Throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus was a perfect emblem of, 
of biblical kindness, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, teaching those who are slow to understand, defending the children. Jesus lived a life of perfect kindness. Even on the cross, he displayed that perfect compassion and kindness when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And who exuded more humility than him? In perfect humility, he counted others more significant than himself. That mind that that Paul said in Philippians 2, we are to have among us, it's the mind of Christ. In perfect humility, he counted others more significant than himself. He did nothing out of selfish ambition. For although he was in the form of God, he didn't count a quality with God, a thing to be seized or grasped, but he emptied himself and he humbled himself, says Paul. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle, or I am meek, and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The Apostle Peter spoke of Christ's meekness in this way, saying that when others reviled him. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And how many times throughout the Gospels don't we see the profound patience of Jesus? How often doesn't he Doesn't he bear with his belligerent disciples? When Philip insisted in John 14, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. Then we'll believe. How did Jesus respond? With patience. Have I been with you so long, Philip? And you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When Thomas declared in unbelief, I will not believe unless I can touch the marks where his nails or put my hand into his side, I will never believe. What did Jesus do? He said, come and see my wounds. Come, place your hand in my side. Jesus put on all of these, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he displayed them to you. And the wonder of his present intercession is that he's still displaying all these things to you. Still to this day, at this very moment, he is compassionate and kind towards you. In meekness and humility, he's still counting you more significant than himself. He lives to intercede for you. And he has been, he continues to be so patient with you, doesn't he? Through all your sinfulness, in the midst of all your stubbornness, he hasn't let go of you or given up on you. He's been patient with you. And he's forgiven you. Beloved, you have wronged him. You have grieved him greatly more than you will ever begin to imagine or fully know. 
but he has forgiven you. And he has been patient with you. All the virtues that Paul sets before us here are virtues belonging to him, to the Lord Jesus. And so because Christ wore these things, because Christ wore compassion and kindness, we too are to wear compassion and kindness. Because Christ was clothed with humility and meekness and patience, we too are to be clothed with humility, meekness, and patience. When others see you, this is what they should see. When you find yourself in the midst of a, of a hard conflict with your brother or sister, Paul says you must bear with him or her because Jesus bears with you. If one of you has a grievance or a complaint against another because Paul knows church life, he knows that we're prone to have grievances against each other complaints against each other. When one of you has a grievance or a complaint against each other, Paul says, forgive each other. You see, when our hidden identity in Christ is made manifest, we begin to forgive because we are a forgiven people. As Paul says, we forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, which means that that we don't forgive only when a person has has earned it. As one of my professors always used to say, we don't turn a reformed understanding of repentance into a Roman Catholic understanding of penance where, where we make people earn their way back into our good graces. As Christians, we're not supposed to hold on to stuff. Christians forgive. Christians let go of the grudge and the anger and the bitterness all of which may at times be very understandable, especially when you've been deeply hurt or wounded. But as my professor has also said, just as Jesus does with us, we are to run ahead with forgiveness and allow those who have wronged us to catch up with repentance. The father of the prodigal son ran out to meet him and embraced him before the son could utter a word. If God has let go of a person's sins, forgiving them at the cross of Christ, who are we to bitterly hold on to them? If God remembers our sins no more, even those sins that that we don't even know we've committed, if God has forgiven them and forgotten them, who are we to, to rehearse them over and over and over again in our minds? Maybe it may well be that someone has wronged you and hurt you deeply, but it may also be the case that, that he or she doesn't even know she's wronged you. Are you willing to mirror your Savior and say, Father, help me to forgive him or her? She doesn't even know what she's done. Help me to forgive it and to forget it. Withholding forgiveness, says Paul, is not an option for the believer. Holding on to things, that's, that's what the world does. That's what unbelievers do. Holding on to anger and malice and, and bitterness, as Paul says in verse 8, those things belong to the old man. But by faith, you've put off the old man. 
and you've put on the new man. Put on then, put on therefore this new attire. Above all these, says Paul, put on love which binds everything together in, in perfect harmony. As Paul expresses it in his in the twin letter of Ephesians in Ephesians 4 and 5, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Be imitators of God and walk in love. Mirror your Savior. Be a reflection of him. We could probably spend more time on each of these virtues, but, but, but by way of summary, Paul says that, that love is to be the always worn outer garment. Love is that which binds or bundles up all these other virtues together. So above all these, he says, put on love. But notice in the second place that with this new attire comes a new arbitrator. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. When Paul speaks here of the peace of Christ, he's, of course, bringing the cross of Christ into view because, because that's where the peace of Christ was, was won for us once and for all. It was there at the cross that, that God and sinners are reconciled. It was there at the cross that that dividing wall of enmity was finally toppled over. As Paul said earlier in chapter 1, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now Paul says that 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 vertical peace between me and God has to lead to a horizontal peace between me and you. The vertical has to bleed into the horizontal so that we who are no longer at enmity with God are no longer at enmity with each other either. As John puts it in his first letter, beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought also to love one another. The vertical has to lead into the horizontal. And we do this, says Paul, by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And the word that Paul uses there for rule might better be translated as, as arbitrate. The sense of the Greek word here evokes the idea of an arbitrator who helps decide in, in a dispute. It's the imagery of an umpire who, who makes the call. And so what Paul's getting at here in verse 15 is that the peace of Christ is to arbitrate. The peace of Christ is to be the umpire among us. Paul's saying we have to keep our eyes fixed on him. And if our desires are lining up with his desires, then we're going to strive to be at one with each other, even as he and his father are one with each other. That's what he prayed for in his high priestly prayer. May they be one as you and I are one. Sometimes in our sin, we get in the way of that and we, we set up blockades to that with our bitterness and our anger and our malice. Your old man, you see, was governed by the evil one. 
The old man is under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. And what, a, and what a horrible arbitrator he is. Never once has he brought about peace of any kind. All he's ever done is, is sown the seeds of division. Sown the seeds of enmity and, and animosity. All he's ever done is say, look out for number one. Those are Satan's arbitration tactics. That's the kind of umpire Satan is. But believers have a new arbitrator in the Lord Jesus. In the midst of their conflicts, in the midst of their complaints with one another, believers are to look to him and believers are to seek their direction and counsel from him. For we have been called, says Paul, into one body, which is Paul's way of of pressing the point home further still. You see, the the peace that Christ won for us has both personal as well as, as corporate implications. Christ accomplished peace between me and God with the goal that there might be peace between me and you. And so in verse 16, Paul shows us how this can be done. How is it that the believer is able to to seek peace like this? How how does the peace of Christ come to rule and, and arbitrate in our hearts? The answer, by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, says Paul, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When Paul speaks of the word of Christ, he's, of course, not just talking about the red letters in some of your Bibles. Paul is speaking about the comprehensive message of Christ found in all of Scripture, the word of Christ is to be a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. A believer is to, is to sing those words that, that we sang from Psalm 119. Make firm my footsteps in your word. Let no corruption rule my way. Free me from man's oppressive power that your commands I may obey. The psalm says elsewhere, Lord, I have stored up your word. I have treasured your word in your heart in order that I might not sin against you. The word of Christ, Paul is saying, needs to reorder and reshape our lives in every way. The word of Christ is to saturate our lives and and permeate our lives so that it shapes our interactions with one another so so that we teach and admonish each other in all Spiritual wisdom. And this word, says Paul, is to be so rich in us that it should spill over into our singing, singing psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs with, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. He calls us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. This, boys and girls, is one of the reasons that we come to church on Sunday to to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God for all the wonders that he has done. When you come to worship congregation, do you come to sing with all your heart? Young people, boys and girls, teenagers, do you come to worship to sing with all your heart? Sometimes in various churches I notice, especially with some teenage boys, an apathy to singing. It seems as though they are not singing at all. 
Are we too cool to sing to God? What does the psalmist say in Psalm 40? As David meditated upon the wonders of God's grace, as he thought about God's faithfulness, he said, He has put a new song into my mouth, a song of praise to our God. As we heard in our call to worship, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have have worked salvation for him. As one of the great hymn writers once said, he who sings well prays twice, both in the words as well as by the music. Believers have something to sing about. Believers have something to sing about. And it's too bad, really, that many of us can sing along with many of the songs in the radio by heart, by memory. But when it comes to many of the songs that God himself has given us, it is not so. We don't want to belabor the point this morning, but the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that Paul speaks of here are all different designations of the broader category of psalms that we have in the Psalter. In fact, there are a couple of psalms in the Psalter that that have these three words written in their inscriptions. And And while I don't think that Paul is here forbidding the church to sing new hymns, man-made hymns, there's a good reason why the church order says the Psalms are to have the principal place in the worship service. For God in His infinite wisdom and grace, right in the middle of our Bibles, has given us an inspired songbook. A songbook written by Christ, with a view to Christ, a songbook that was sung by Christ throughout his earthly ministry, a songbook that testifies to Christ on every page and every song. And what a wonderful way to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by mastering the songbook that God has been gracious to give us, not only singing those songs at church, but singing them in our homes with our children. What better way to help your children say with the psalmist, I've, I've stored up your word in my heart than, than by teaching them to sing the psalms. This Paul says we are to do with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that's how Paul concludes this section with a call to thankfulness. Having summoned us to put on a new attire and to And to seek peace according to our new arbitrator, he finally sets before us a new ambition. A new ambition that could probably be a sermon in itself, but he says, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the first place, Paul says that whatever we do, we are to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. As Christians, we confess in Lord's Day 12, we've come to to share in Christ's anointing. We've come to to wear his name on our sleeves. God has has kept that promise of Ezekiel 36. You know, in Ezekiel 36, God's lamenting what his people have done. They've, They've dragged his name through the mud. 
They've profaned his name. And God said, I'm going to give you a new heart. You may walk before me. And that's what God has done for us. He's given us a a new heart to, to walk before him, to wear his name. Acknowledging that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. As sons and daughters of the Reformation, we we refrain from drawing that that sharp line between the, the sacred and the secular. But whatever we do, not just here on Sunday, but whatever we do in our work, in our play, we're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, acknowledging that He is sovereign over all. As as Kuiper so famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. And so if there's anything that you wouldn't be comfortable doing in the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul would say, why would you do it? If you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. If you can't listen to that song, if you can't watch that movie in the name of the Lord Jesus, then you shouldn't listen to it. Then you shouldn't watch it. That's what Paul's saying. And the second place, he adds that note of thanksgiving. He adds, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, Paul recognizes that God's grace always leads to gratitude. That's what he's setting before us in this last verse. God's grace always leads to gratitude. And so this last verse is really a summary of, a summary statement of all that Paul has been saying since chapter 2, verse 6, isn't it? In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul said, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and, and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This, of course, was a thread that Paul began even earlier on in chapter 1, verse 10, in his prayer that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We, of course, recognize that None of us here can ever be thankful enough for all that God has done for us. We can only scratch the surface. But Paul is saying, let us make it our chief aim. Let us make it our chief ambition in life every morning, every day. Let us make it our aim to please him. Our chief ambition to give thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes came down from heaven and counted himself lowly and humble for our sakes, that he put on these virtues, a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, and that he displayed these things to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to look like him, that we might bear that family resemblance of those belonging to the household of faith. May we look like our older brother, 
by the sanctification of your spirit, may we put on these things, this new attire. May we put on love, which binds all these things together in perfect harmony. Father, in our disputes and complaints and grievances, help us to forgive. As you have forgiven us, may we also forgive, Lord. May the peace of Christ arbitrate in the midst of our conflicts and complaints. May we look to him for guidance and counsel, to his example, to his heart, to his compassion and kindness. Father, we pray that you would indeed cause your word to dwell in us richly. May we be a people who love your word. May we be a people who live in your word, who meditate upon your word. May your word dwell in us so rich that it pours out into our singing. We might sing with thankfulness to you. Finally, Father, we pray that you would give to us this new ambition. May this be our chief aim and ambition in life to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you through him. May his mind be among ourselves. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As our song of response.